Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. We really do need to make it very clear that, that we have no quarrel with the Chinese people, certainly not those who live here in Australia, and that our, dis- our disagreement and our dispute is with the Chinese government and the Communist Party. The difficult times that we're experiencing in our trading relationship with China now are not anything that any rational Australian government would have sought to bring on or to cause if it was solely within our power. And if we could avoid it without compromising our national interest or our values, of course we would. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College. In this program, part of our Security Summit series, Senator James Patterson, Chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, chats to Head of the National Security College, Professor Rory Medcalf. Their wide-ranging conversation spans Australia-China relations, countering foreign interference in Australian universities, sovereignty, bipartisanship, and much more. But first, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land on which we're broadcasting from. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now let's get into it. So uh, welcome to the National Security Podcast and welcome to, uh, to my session where we talk to national security leaders, uh, Security Summit, as we, we grandly title it. But it's a real pleasure to welcome today uh, Senator James Patterson, uh, who is, of course, uh, the chair of the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security for the Australian Parliament. And I guess it's in that capacity, but also looking at your own career and your uh, not just interest, but your very active interest in national security issues uh, that we've got you on the program today, Senator. So welcome. It's great to be with you, Rory. Thank you very much. I'm a long-time listener and uh, very happy to be a first-time caller. Indeed. Thank you and welcome to the, the National Security College at ANU. So, uh, Senator, I thought we'd, we'd cover quite a wide range of ground uh, in the podcast today. I, I wanted, obviously, to speak to you about the the work of your committee, the the PJSIS, as the insiders call it, I think, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, but also I want to talk with you about national security, uh, broadly defined, the way you imagine and understand security to be when you approach security as a, a parliamentarian and as such a, an active uh, figure in the Australian policy debate. would love to go to some of the, um, the challenging issues that I know uh, you're interested in and you've played such a significant role in, such as the, the issue of uh, foreign interference uh, in Australia and, and the Australian national response to that, uh, and, and a few other issues besides. So, if um, if you're good with all of that, we'll, we'll we'll proceed. And I guess I'd I'd begin by um, asking you simply in broad terms, what is national security uh, from your perspective today as, as an Australian parliamentarian? 
Look, there's obviously a, a narrow, straightforward conception of national security, which is um, protecting Australians from threats to their lives, from threats to their physical safety and security. Um, but national security has come to mean and should mean something much broader than that. It's not just about physical threats to our safety in terms of terrorist violence or threat of invasion. Uh, it is threats to our way of life in a broader sense. And what I've been particularly concerned about and interested in over the last five years is attempts to constrain our way of life and effectively constrain our freedom of action as a sovereign democratic nation. Because you can do great, great harm to a country without ever firing a shot, without ever um, putting a, a soldier on the ground, just by constraining their options available to them, by curtailing their freedom uh, to navigate, to move around the world and the freedom of their citizens to travel freely. And you can profoundly weaken and harm and change the character of a nation by doing that. So I think we have to think about national security in much broader terms and think about the much broader array of non-traditional threats to that way of life and that democratic freedom which we enjoy as Australians. It's um, it, it's been really a, a journey for Australia in recent years to um, to come to terms with this broader idea of what national security is, and I think you know as you say the uh, issues related to foreign interference and, and sovereignty. I think uh, if you like national values and a, I think a sense of Australia's identity as a as a multicultural democratic nation that that's part of the picture. Um, but there are other issues as well, whether it's um, COVID-19 or bushfires or so many other issues that have also been on the national security horizon. So where do you, I guess, where in your mind do you set boundaries as to what is security and what isn't security? That, that's a great question because there do need to be boundaries. Um, none of us want to live in a national security state. None of us want policy in every single realm to be subsumed to national security priorities because if we did, our society would look very different to what it is and we would uh, permit things that as a liberal democracy, uh, most Australians would not be comfortable currently permitting. So we do need to draw boundaries around it and it is tempting to have a bit of national security scope creep and say that everything is national security. So um, I, I like to think of it in a broad way but not a ridiculously broad way. Um, I think it really fits comfortably within the issues of obviously terrorism and espionage which are the traditional um, threats to national security and more recently in the issues of foreign interference, which is a subtle variation on espionage, a different form of espionage, that covert attempt to influence our democratic decision-making process against our national interest. Um, I think we should be cautious, though, going much more beyond that because then you are getting to um, national security setting, policy settings in every other realm as well, and that won't always be to our interest in terms of the individual freedoms of Australians or the prosperity of Australians, and um, those things are important to promote and protect as well. So let's go to the, the work of your committee or the committee that you chair, and I think one of the things we try to do on this program is to unpack what can be quite if you obscure or esoter seemingly esoteric um, uh, activities and processes in government in, in the making and the scrutinising of, of national security policy and to try to explain them in, in, in general terms to, ma to make sense of them. Uh, for a lot of the general public, you know, the Parliamentary Joint Committee on Intelligence and Security, it's quite a, quite a mouthful and it's perhaps often been hard to tell what has this got to do with uh, our everyday lives or our, um, uh, our broad sense of national interest. But 
The committee has become more and more prominent in recent years. Um, so much policy now has a national security edge to it, uh, whether we like it or not, and so much uh, of, of the work of the committee is in the public eye, is very visible uh, and influential. Can you give us a snapshot of what the committee is, uh, what it does? Yeah. It's important to understand that the PJCIS is not a traditional parliamentary committee and it doesn't function like a normal parliamentary committee. And it's different from other parliamentary committees in part just because of evolution and practice and culture of the committee, but actually also almost inherently by design. Um, it was established for a very uh, specific purpose and that was that um, the major parties agreed that it wasn't desirable or in the national interest to have um, extensive partisan debates in either the House of Representatives or the Senate about national security issues, that there was a very good reason why we should try to maintain bipartisan consensus on those issues as much as possible, and that we needed a forum where we could do that, um, which was partly in the public eye and subject to public scrutiny as it should be, but also had the capacity to negotiate in private, be briefed confidentially, and have a formal relationship with the security agencies to facilitate that process. And so one of the reasons why um, traditionally reports from the committee have been on a bipartisan basis and have been consensus is not just because bipartisanship is a nice thing to have and in lots of policy areas it is a nice thing to have, but because we think it's actually critical to our national interest, we think it's inherently dangerous for the major parties of government to become separated on those issues and for that to spill out into the public debate because that provides opportunities for our adversaries. And I think in many ways the establishment of the committee was a very far-sighted thing to do uh, because it anticipated very accurately the way in which right now um, there are foreign state actors in particular who are actively seeking to divide us uh, from each other, both uh, laterally in a, in a political sense, in a bipartisan national sense, but also vertically between state and federal governments. So it is, it is a favoured tactic um, of the Chinese Communist Party tried and true and tested um, to try and drive wedges in free and open societies because that is a vulnerability of a free and open society. So we, we need to counteract that with um, uh, methods of our own that are consistent with our values and robust parliamentary oversight and scrutiny through a, a mechanism like the PJCS is, is a great way of achieving that objective. So just to be clear, the, the, the committee, uh, I mean, it, it, it's an even, it, it has even representation from both sides of politics? It's slightly uneven. The government has six members and the opposition has five members and, and there must always be a government chair of the committee, um, but it operates by consensus. It would, be, it would be almost unforeseeable for a vote to be pushed through on a partisan basis through the committee and national security legislation doesn't generally proceed through the parliament except by the agreement of the committee and the consensus and a consensus supportive report of the committee. And so so that's from your, There's no hard and fast on. rule that says you can't do that. It's just convention. So from your experience, and of course it's you're relatively new in in the role. You succeeded uh, Andrew Hasty uh, in the in the role of chair. From your experience, uh, how bipartisan uh, are its activities from what you've seen so far? There are genuine differences of opinion that committee members bring to inquiries and to proposed legislation in particular, and that stems from genuine philosophical differences that we bring. I mean, we do represent different political parties and even within our parties, different constituencies, different worldviews. And so there is um, obvious points of tension and disagreement, and we shouldn't try and paper over those and pretend they don't exist. We have to uh, reconcile them, and that's because they reflect the diversity of the communities that we represent, and Australians don't have 
just one fixed view on these issues. And often we're, we're asked to do a balancing exercise between individual liberties and, and national security. And there are trade-offs in that. And reasonable people can disagree about where the line should be drawn on those things. What we do try and avoid, though, is gratuitous partisanship or partisanship for its own sake, where it is purely politically driven. It is not um, based in the national interest or in genuine philosophical disagreement. Um, and when we have those disagreements, we try as best we can to reconcile them. So um, for my part, as a new chair of the committee, I, I'm intent on doing everything I can to uphold that, but recognising I'm just one of 11 members of the committee and that I need all members of the committee to help me uphold that. And also the broader political climate that we operate in dictates um, the ability that we have to compromise and negotiate with each other and reach agreement. If our parties, if our leaders um, on a broader level are at loggerheads on an issue, the chances are we are going to be as well and we're subject to the political environment like everyone else is. And and to do this work, the committee has, um, I guess, it, it receives more insight directly from the national security agencies than um, parliamentarians would normally receive. Is that right? I mean, are there classified briefings or secure briefings or how does that work if you can reveal that on a, on a public format? Yeah, look, in a general way I can. I mean, the, the access that I have now as the new chair of the committee compared to what I had three months ago when I was just an ordinary member of parliament um, is profoundly different and I'm unusual in that I have been um, elected as a chair of the committee and also as a new member of the committee, I didn't previously serve on the committee. So I've gone not from just being a general member to a committee member to the chair, but a general member of the parliament who didn't have access to these kind of briefings before. Um, so it is it is a step change. It is a significant um, step up from what uh, you have access to as a normal member of parliament. We don't actually have a formal clearance process for members of parliament. We don't have to go through a vetting process. Um, they do have that in some other legislatures in the US Congress, for example. Congress uh, men and women can be vetted for security purposes in order to gain access to information. But I think the Australian political culture is if you are elected to be to represent um, the people and you're in the federal parliament and beyond that, your party leaders have decided that you should be nominated to be a member of this committee, that that you know, is all the vetting and all the clearance that you should have or require because otherwise you would have an executive veto over a parliamentary function and there's good reasons why we should be uncomfortable with that. So um, we, we are given access to classified briefings on, on a need-to-know basis, not um, not unnecessarily. We're not, we don't, not, we don't get routine briefing, briefings of things that are not relevant to the committee, but where it's relevant to legislation, we're considering issues that we are uh, talking about, where we are briefed appropriately. Let's turn specifically to some of the work the committee's doing at the moment. Now, you know, there have been a number of inquiries that um, this um, committee has um, ha- has managed managed over the past few years. I mean, important roles as, as legislation was developed for, for example, foreign interference uh, or looking at the, um, the relationship between the public interest and the national interest, freedom of the press uh, in recent years. But most recently, of course, you've been looking at, at higher education and at issues related to foreign influence or interference in the higher education sector. I know this one's ongoing and therefore there may be limits to what you can say. Um, there are a number of submissions, evidence has been given and so forth. And, and of course, I guess I could say I have a particularly um, slightly conflicted interest here given that I work in the higher education sector and mm-hmm. a particular university. But are there any general observations you could make so far about that process, that inquiry into uh, foreign interference in, in higher education in Australia? Yeah, I can. I mean, I have a long-standing interest in this issue. And in fact, this inquiry was referred to the committee by the government after Andrew Hastie and I wrote to the Prime Minister um, asking that it be referred. 
Uh, and after he and I both made public comments um, in about August last year when there was some particular public reporting by Shari Markson in The Australian about the Thousand Talents program and the extent to which Australian academics might have been participating in that without the visibility or without the full visibility of their own employing universities, some of whom were recipients of Australian Research Council grants, um, which entails certain restrictions. Um, but also there, there was a lot of public discussion about universities and foreign interference last year around issues uh, at the University of Queensland with a student, Drew Pavlou, a, a human rights activist, and his treatment by the university, um, by an academic at the University of New South Wales, Elaine Pearson, who's also a, a Human Rights Watch director in Australia. And so it was very um, much in the public consciousness. And I had had reservations for some time about the way in which universities had managed their exposure to China. Um, I had been concerned that they had become excessively reliant on foreign student income from China and some universities in particular had become vulnerable to that um, and that they weren't being prudent in all of their international relationships, particularly around Confucius Institutes on campus and uh, research cooperation agreements with Chinese universities in particular, um, uh, Chinese military universities with Alex Josky's research at um, the Australian Strategic Policy Institute uh, raising a lot of red flags and concerns about that. Um, and so the purpose of this inquiry is to then to shed greater light on this. This has not been an area of public policy that hasn't had a lot of attention in recent years. There's been a, a, a massive amount of attention to it. The government has established a, a foreign interference task force uh, to work with the universities uh, universities are now subject to the Foreign Relations Bill, which passed just last year before Christmas, where the Foreign Minister can now has a power to cancel uh, agreements between universities and, and foreign state-controlled universities. So there's a lot been happening in this space, but we still felt nonetheless um, some sunlight would be uh, a beneficial thing. And what we've learned so far in uh, the inquiries, it's a complex picture. Um, the, hmm. Some universities are far better at dealing with these issues than others. Some are much further down the road on this journey than others. Um, most have a, at least a stated intent of um, hardening themselves and making themselves more resilient to these kind of threats. Um, I think there's a gap between rhetoric and reality and follow-through at some institutions. Um, but there are some really even finer complexities to it with that some institutions themselves are very strong in one respect, but very weak in others. Um, uh, they might be very well advanced in dealing with the cybersecurity angle, but not well equipped to deal with the talent recruitment program issues. So um, we are getting a nuanced picture and the recommendations we make will be informed by that because we want to celebrate the success of those universities who are showing best practice and we want to bring other universities up to that standard. And we don't want to needlessly recommend legislative change and place further burdens on universities um, unless there's a good case for it. Is, is there a sense that um, universities generally are taking their obligation or their, their national interest responsibilities uh, considerably more seriously now than they were a number of years ago? Unquestionably. If you look at the situation five years ago to today, it is a world of difference. And universities have engaged well through the um, UFIT process, the Countering Foreign Interference process with the Department of Home Affairs and Intelligence Agencies. Um, and there seems to be at most universities quite a good commitment at the senior leadership levels to it. Some uh, academics, some vice-chancellors in particular, have confided, though, that they have challenges in communicating the importance of this to the whole institution. Universities are, as you would know, uh, enormous institutions, unwieldy mm. institutions in some way, and um, vice-chancellors in some respects have very limited powers to kind of turn them around. They're, a, they're an oil tanker. They don't turn around on a dime. Um, and they are going through a process of cultural change in many institutions to demonstrate to all of their employees the importance of these issues. One, Daniel, before I move away from this topic, one other question, I guess, is whether the um, 
the Commonwealth bureaucracy is sufficiently resourced, uh, empowered and, and apprised of this because it's not it's not as if this is a problem just for universities to manage internally, uh, no matter how good their mechanisms for, I guess, risk management and, and, and problem identification are. But there's also a, a role that the Commonwealth plays, whether it's in informing or, I guess, in the ultimate you know the ultimate uh, end uh, in enforcing. Um, do, do you is that within the um, the terms of reference of the of this inquiry or not? Not particularly. Yeah, it, it absolutely is. We are looking at the resources that the Commonwealth provides to universities to assist them in this task. And one of the themes of the feedback from universities so far is they do want more clarity from the Commonwealth government on things like sensitive technology and potentially dual use technology. Um, when you look at the philosophy of civil military fusion that Xi Jinping has for China, um, seemingly innocuous uh, technologies can have a military application and it's not always easy for universities to determine themselves what that is and they do need some assistance from government on that and I understand there is work being done on that to help provide that clarity. Um, it, I, I, to an extent, though, I don't want a situation of learned helplessness from mm. the university where they say, if you don't tell us we can't do it, we assume we can do it. Universities have to exercise their own independent judgment as well. And the law should be the um, outer limit, the absolute outer limit of what's permissible. And universities do not need to go all the way up to that line. They can make their own judgments about what is in the institution's interests and also what's consistent with the institution's values. Um, when you see, for example, stories that some Australian academics have cooperated in uh, surveillance technology, which has been rolled out in Xinjiang against the Uyghur people, um, it shouldn't need to be against the law for an Australian university to be uncomfortable about that <laughs> no. and to ask themselves, is that consistent with our values? Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theatres, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. So let's move to the broader topic of foreign interference because I think that's, as you, as you said at the beginning of this conversation, when you think about national security and your own journey, I guess, in the last few years um, of, of, of greater awareness and activism on national security, I think the foreign interference issue has been pretty emblematic for you. Um, can you talk a little bit more at length about what you see as the challenge and maybe, maybe your own journey uh, uh, to be so active on this issue? Yeah, my, I think my own journey is similar to that of a lot of other members of parliament and probably the community at large, which is that when I entered the parliament in March 2016, I didn't do so with the intent of being a particularly vocal or active participant in national security policy, nor on Australia's relationship with China. Uh, in fact, in my maiden speech, um, completely unprompted in an unqualified way, I celebrated the fact that 660 million people in the last 30 years have been lifted out of poverty in China due to the reforms commenced by Deng Xiaoping in 1978 and what a wonderfully, profoundly positive event that has been for all of humanity. Um, but uh, as the world has changed um, and as the environment we're operating in, we have to change as well. And I fell into these debates almost by accident when the Australian Parliament was contemplating ratifying an extradition treaty with the People's Republic of China. And the brief history of that is that it was negotiated under the Howard government but lay dormant, never ratified by the Howard mm. government 
nor the Rudd or Gillard governments, nor the Abbott government. But um, after coming uh, to the Prime Ministership, Malcolm Turnbull and his Foreign Minister Julie Bishop decided that um, this was unfinished business. It was a request of the Chinese government that we do this, um, and so they put it to the Parliament for ratification. And as a classical liberal who believes in individual freedoms, I was instinctively uncomfortable with the idea that Australian citizens or other citizens under our care could be extradited to face what is an unfair and unfree justice system that Chinese prosecutors boast of a 99.9% conviction rate in their criminal justice system. Uh, and I was uncomfortable on that level. But I also became increasingly concerned that the Chinese diaspora in Australia would um, have yet another tool of coercion to be applied against them. Already they were subject to threats to their friends and family back home if they didn't um, go along with Beijing's political ambitions and support their political objectives. And I knew that the fear of being extradited, even if they never were extradited, would be another tool. Now, this is in March 2017, where the Lowe Institute polling shows that Australian attitudes to China were as high as they ever had been. They were as positive as they ever had been. And the gap between yeah. Australians' attitudes towards China and the United States was as narrow as it ever had been. And so when I and a couple of other members of parliament, Andrew Hastie was one of them, Tim Wilson was another, threatened to cross the floor against our party to vote to um, nullify this treaty rather than permit it, um, we were taking a quite a counterintuitive and unpopular stand, and particularly with the business community. Um, yeah, and so it wasn't one of the more, it wasn't popular at the time. <laughs> no, and nor, nor was it popular with the government. I can tell you, I um, of all the things I've done in <laughs> politics, this was the one of the more difficult things I did, and I got some very robust feedback um, uh, from very senior members of the government. I, I was I learned uh, that I was a topic of discussion at a cabinet meeting. And I was reliably informed that for a backbencher one year into their term in Parliament, this was not a good thing uh, to be a topic of conversation. So I was strongly counselled to back away from that, but I, I couldn't in good conscience. And in the end, um, the Labor Party subsequently announced their opposition to it. The Greens had already been opposed to it. And Cory Bernardi, as a Conservative independent, was going to move a, uh, a motion to, to nullify it. And so the government wisely withdrew it. Um, but that's how I fell into this debate. And, and from there... I developed a view that um, we had been too complacent about the risks of foreign interference um, and subsequent events really uh, vindicated that view like the Sam Dastiari affair, which had quite a profound impact on, on the political system. And the great work that has been done in that period since, in those four to five years since, um, has actually really hardened Australia and made us much more resilient to these threats. I still think there's some work to do, but when you look at the establishment of the Department of Home Affairs, the passage of foreign interference legislation, the banning of high-risk vendors from 5G, the banning of political donations from foreign entities. Um, we've done an awful lot to strengthen ourselves against these threats and we are now seen as a leader internationally and a lot of our partners uh, internationally are seeking to learn from what we've done and to replicate a lot of what we've done. So, you know, there's no doubt that this debate uh, on foreign interference and influence in Australia and the, and the Australian, the robust Australian response to that over the last three to four years has, has been a really defining event, I think, for Australia's place in the world. And uh, as you note, it, it, it's shown Australia as something of a um, an early warning system for, for much of yeah. the world. But there are costs and, and, you know, we can perhaps talk another time about the, um, you know, the economic coercion, for example, that Australia's enduring. But there are also costs to um, segments of the Australian population. I think one of the areas where there has been concern, Ed, as you've said, is about the um, the rights and the safety and the welfare and the freedoms of, um, of Chinese diaspora communities, of, of communities of Chinese origin in Australia. And although 
at one level, you can make the case, and I, I, I would agree with this, that protecting um, the freedom of expression within the diverse Chinese origin communities in Australia uh, it, it should be a major priority you know, to, to really ensure that they have equal rights as Australian citizens. On the other hand, uh, you know, there is concern now within uh, parts of the Chinese Australian communities that there's a sense of unfair victimisation, a sense that scrutiny on Chinese Communist Party interference can also uh, encourage, you know, essentially xenophobia or, or, or racism. So what would you say to those concerns? How do you reassure Australian communities of Chinese origin? Look, I absolutely understand and respect those concerns. And as I said in my previous answer, one of the reasons my, my motivations for being involved in this debate is the protection of the interests of the Chinese diaspora. And I have a profound personal appreciation for Chinese civilization and its achievements and culture and cuisine. And um, we have a wonderfully diverse Chinese community. Um, I, I went to school, had a lot of Chinese uh, migrants at it. And um, so from an early age, I've had a real um, sense of connection uh, to them and an appreciation for their perspective and their worldview. Um, and I think you're right, preservation of freedom of speech within that diverse community is very important because there are um, very spirited debates about Australia's relationship with China and the direction of the Chinese Communist Party within those communities. But unfortunately, they're becoming under increasing pressure in two respects. One is the most obvious one, which is coercion from Beijing, trying to shut down and stifle that conversation, whether it's through WeChat or their incursion into Chinese language media here in Australia or threats to family and friends back home. But the other is um, uh, anti-Chinese racism or anti-broader anti-Asian racism, which we have seen, unfortunately, spike in the wake of COVID-19 in particular. And that's the last thing I want to say, um, because I think it's abhorrent and immoral, um, because I also think it's counterproductive. Um, we, we want to work with and support the um, 1.2 million uh, Chinese descendants who live in Australia and make them feel like fully, equally um, you know, participants in our democracy and uh, I want to see more of their voices in public debate, not less. And if they feel ostracised and excluded and singled out, then that's totally counter to our aims. So one of the things I try to do is be very careful with my language and talk about the Chinese government or the Chinese Communist Party as distinct from the Chinese people. The Chinese people have had no say for um, 70 years in who leads them and it is um, morally uh, abhorrent to... Um, make them morally culpable for, for the actions of the Chinese Communist Party, particularly those who've lived in Australia for all of their lives or much of their lives. And um, and we really do need to make very clear that, that we have no quarrel with the Chinese people, certainly not those who live here in Australia, and that uh, our, dis our disagreement and our dispute is with the Chinese government and the Communist Party. So what more can we do when I say we, Australia, as a nation, as a society, and of course the Commonwealth government in that regard, what more can be done to provide that reassurance? I think it's about um, the tone that we all set. Um, I'm particularly conscious of that as parliamentarians, that uh, we have to be very careful with our choice of language and very precise in what we mean, and we have to be very anxious not to stoke broader um, anti-Chinese or anti-Asian sentiment in our contributions to public debate. Um, that's something that I think very deeply about. I will never allow a false accusation of racism to silence my criticism of the Chinese Communist Party, and we have to be very aware that that is a favoured tactic um, of the CPC. They they label all criticism of Chinese government policies as racism because they know that's such a powerful accusation in a country like mm. Australia, which generally abhors racism. We have, unfortunately, pockets of it, but generally it's, it's unacceptable in Australia. And so 
Um, we can't allow that to um, be used as a weapon against us to prevent that criticism. But we have to wrap our arms around the, the Chinese community. It's particularly important we did so early in the context of COVID when there was a, a perception that it was um, that the Chinese community was somehow responsible for it or a vector for it, and that was deeply unfair. Um, it was awful to see um, in the early part of the pandemic the impact it was having on Chinese businesses. I, with Gladys Liu, I visited a um, Chinese restaurant in February um, 2020 in Box Hill, and it was a ghost town because people feared irrationally that, that, that COVID was going to be picked up from there. So it was really important we demonstrated that um, they are just as much part of the Australian community as any other migrant community and just as welcome and um, have every right to participate. So looking at the political landscape in Australia now, then, I mean, as you say, there's been, and, and, and sticking broadly with the foreign interference issue for the moment, there's broadly been this much greater political awareness that you've seen and indeed a public awareness as well. In fact, uh, one could make the argument that, that, you know, three or four or five years ago, the kind of stance that you took on the extradition treaty was not popular. Uh, that sort of stance today presumably would be substantially more popular. And, and just to illustrate that, um, we went from, in, in a space of two years, in 2017 to 2019, from proposing our own extradition treaty with China to the Foreign Minister, now Maurice Payne, issuing a media release to congratulate Hong Kong when they suspended their consideration of a uh, extradition treaty with mainland China. And a year later, um, when the national security law passed in Hong Kong, the Australian government cancelling our existing extradition treaty with Hong Kong. And this time it didn't require a backbench revolt or threats of crossing the floor. We were certainly vocal, but we were pushing on an open door. And so the world has moved on immensely on those sorts of issues. So I guess the question is then how, how, how does government reassure the country that the positions it takes on the China issue or on the foreign interference issue are positions that are being taken for national security reasons, not for reasons because this is now politically popular, if you see what I mean? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. I mean, I think the best answer to that is that um, the difficult times that we're experiencing in our trading relationship with China now are not anything that any rational Australian government would have sought to bring on or yeah. to cause if it was solely within our power. And if we could avoid it without compromising our national interest or our values, of course we would. Unfortunately, we now know, courtesy of the 14 demands handed by the Chinese embassy to a journalist last year, um, that what the Chinese government would like from us in order to end that trade dispute is a price that no government would be willing to pay. Labor, Liberal, Left, Right, it doesn't matter. Any self-respecting Australian government couldn't give in to those sort of demands, which really were amounted to an attack on our sovereignty and our political independence and said that our acts of passing foreign interference, which apply um, in a non-discriminatory way to all countries, our acts of securing our digital sovereignty or our political sovereignty um, by banning Huawei or banning foreign donations, they are regarded as the Chinese, by the Chinese government as an interference in their domestic affairs when, you know, I think any Australian would agree that's just really solely a matter for us and our parliament to decide. Um, uh, the, the Belt and Road Agreement and Victorian government's participation was on that list. Why shouldn't it be the case that Canberra is in charge of our foreign relations? What other country would allow um, freelancing by a state or provincial government? Certainly not China um, in foreign affairs. So um, Australians should be reassured that we would not have sought to put ourselves in this position um, uh, without very good reason. And there's nothing that we have done that's put us in this position that we would do differently because it would require such a compromise of our national interest to avoid it. And, and uh, I want to get to the question of, I guess, sentiment in Parliament on these issues, including across across the aisle. Um, 
because, I mean, you've spoken about the experience of your committee where there is, I think, a, a really uh, healthy uh, dimension of bipartisanship. But more generally, do you sense do, do, do you sense that there's a broad sense across Parliament of, uh, of, of agreement on these issues or, or, or is there a risk that this could become, um, you know, a, a major partisan issue, for example, in the next uh, election? I think the consensus is there and, if anything, it's becoming stronger, not weaker. A year or two ago, there was more criticism from the opposition of the government's handling of this issue and there was a political opportunity potentially there for them to make um, hay out of the, the trade sanctions and to seek to blame the Australian government for that. But actually, most of that criticism really has been uh, at the margins and doesn't go to the core of the policy choices that were made all of which were done on a bipartisan basis. Every one of those 14 demands of the Chinese embassy for us to revoke, if they're legislative, were things that passed the parliament on a bipartisan basis, in some instances without um, any opposition at all, even from the Greens or minor parties. So um, there is that very strong consensus on the policy settings. Of course, oppositions are always tempted to criticise governments because that's the nature of what an opposition does. And all that I would ask and hope from the opposition towards the government is that they do so in a measured way and in a strategic way and not gratuitously because that would be dangerous. And it, if it did open up a big gap between opposition and government, um, that would be really regrettable. It would never seek to um, unnecessarily stifle oppositions. They have a vitally important role in holding government to account and, and they should absolutely pursue that to its, to its limits. But if they do agree, and they do, on the big policy settings, then that should be made clear. And if it's a bad implementation or, or management, then they should make that clear. So I, I, this is this is a, this is a half serious question. Does this mean, with this sense of um, consensus across Parliament, that there's no need for uh, the the so-called Wolverines anymore? And 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 maybe you can elaborate a bit on this Wolverine thing because you have been criticised, and and others, uh, I guess, in this uh, apparent grouping, have been criticised for you know having to put such a sort of dramatic label on um, on a group of parliamentarians that held certain views on uh, yeah. on, on the Chinese Communist Party. I should make clear, and I haven't always had the opportunity to do this, that it is a very tongue-in-cheek um, label. We do not seriously consider ourselves to be Wolverines or in the style of the 1980s um, uh, Hollywood film to be fighting a uh, rearguard action against a foreign invasion. It, it, is a, it is a tongue-in-cheek, amusing thing. But it was, a, it was an explicit strategy in two respects. One is we wanted to undergird that bipartisan support for a more robust Australian foreign policy, a more assertive foreign policy that safeguarded our national interests and our values more strongly because we knew that it couldn't be done alone and it would be dangerous to be done alone. It should be done on a bipartisan basis. Um, but also we had a communications task, a communications challenge when we're contemplating that public opinion polling that showed very positive sentiment towards China to bring the public along with us because we envisage that there may need to be costs borne by Australians and we've seen that in, in the economic coercion and we thought that Australians would be willing to bear those costs in order to safeguard our sovereignty and our democracy but not if it wasn't explained to them, not if it wasn't communicated to them and the Wolverines really was a tool for that kind of not that elite policy debate, but that mass communications task. Um, you don't get a double-page spread in the Herald Sun on Chinese foreign interference issues without a, um, you know, marketing kind of spin to it, and that's what it was designed to do. It's since kind of morphed itself into the Interparliamentary Alliance on China, which is now a grouping of 20 parliaments from around the world, Europe, North America, Asia, 
um, every one of those member parliaments has a centre-left and centre-right co-chair. I'm, I'm the co-chair here in Australia with Kimberley Kitching from Labor. Um, and there's 200-odd individual parliamentarians who are members, and that's been a really productive way of getting some international solidarity when countries are singled out as Australia has been to demonstrate that we're not alone and we don't face these challenges alone. So you're not an insurgency anymore. It's a, it's a respectable international grouping. That's right. That's right. And I think, I mean, we were political insurgents in the sense that we were working against the consensus of the time and particularly the elite policy consensus and the business community consensus, which was that economic consideration should come before all other considerations and that we should be willing to sacrifice our voice on a human rights issue if it meant uh, a little bit more trade. And in order to overturn that consensus, we had to have a political debate and we had to win an argument. And that was the, the vehicle for doing that. And I think we've largely done that now. And I think the business community, perhaps more than any other community, has come a very long way uh, in changing their view on these issues. And they understand for their own business reasons that being overexposed to one market, particularly an authoritarian market with a different political system, is inherently dangerous and diversification is in good business sense, even if you didn't care about the geopolitical implications of it. So look, before we wrap up, I want to ask a little bit, uh, bit, ask you a bit of a counterfactual about what if things had been a little bit different. So if we did not have the laws on foreign interference and foreign influence that have been controversial uh, that were introduced in recent years, um, and yet we're now as a nation involved in this difficult situation, you know, facing what appears to be economic coercion um, and a campaign in some cases of, of propaganda as well, directed at influencing our, um, our, our national policies. If uh, we didn't have the, if you like, the preparedness in place that the laws embody, do you think the debate would be different in Australia? Can you, can you see things, have turned, things having turned out differently? Absolutely. That is a great question. I mean, I think the place that we have arrived in our relationship with China, we were always going to arrive at because of the trajectory they were on. And if you want evidence of that, all you have to do is look around the world and see there's a, certainly a spectrum and some have more significant and serious disputes than others. But almost every country that has diplomatic relations is engaged in some kind of dispute with them, whether it's Norway or Sweden or um, India or Taiwan or South Korea. They've all been, Japan, they've all been through some sort of experience like this. And frankly, some of them are much worse than ours. I, I mean, Indian soldiers and Chinese soldiers have killed each other on their border. Um, we haven't, uh, you know, traded blows. Taiwan is regularly threatened with invasion. So there's some who have it worse than Australia, but certainly I think we're in the more serious end of the spectrum. So I think we're inevitably going to arrive at this point. And the question is, if that was always the case, if we could foresee that, what would we have liked to have done to prepare ourselves for it? I think exactly what we have done. I think that um, hardening and that resilience building that we've done over the last five years has equipped us to stand up for ourselves and assert our interests much more strongly than we otherwise would have. And it's why some other countries, particularly within the Five Eyes, look at us with envy and seek our advice about how to deal with these issues because they are a couple of years behind that reckoning. They haven't dealt with these issues as we have. And I think back to issues like the Sam Dastiari affair and if the changes that we made in the wake of that weren't made, imagine how much further that influence might have extended and how much that might have fractured or undermined our, the political consensus that we now have on those issues. I mean, you had an Australian senator stand up at the Commonwealth Parliamentary Offices in Sydney and articulate the Chinese government's position on the South China Sea, not the Australian government's position, and that was just one person. But imagine if that influence building had been allowed to continue unchecked and how much weaker we would have been today to resist it. 
Yeah, I suspect um, I suspect he did us all a favour uh, in, in the historical perspective. But um, look, before we wrap up, I just might ask you, um, and I think perhaps unwittingly did us a favour, I should, I should say. Before yes. I wrap up, I might um, just ask you a more, a more general question about, um, about your own future, about um, the work that lies ahead, because clearly uh, the, the committee's busy, uh, the agenda is busy, um, I guess if, if you look back on the um, if you look back later in life on, on these few years and, and the next few years, what do you want to define um, your work and your contribution as? Well, we do have a very busy agenda. We've got about a dozen inquiries before the committee at the moment. Everything from the university's inquiry we've discussed to radicalism and extremism online, and, and a number of important legislative proposals that we're considering. Uh, and my kind of KPI from government is to clear through as much of that backlog as possible um, so that the work can flow through the parliament in a normal way. One thing I reflect on when I uh, look at uh, valedictory speeches from politicians when they retire is that often, um, although they're very proud of a ministerial service that they might have, and we all hope for that while we're in parliament, um, sometimes the most profound contributions they've made are earlier in their careers when they're backbenchers or later in their careers when they are again backbenchers after having been ministers. And that's not just true of Australia, it's true internationally as well. If you look at someone like Ian Duncan Smith, a former leader of the Conservative Party, now an extremely influential and vocal voice as a humble backbencher in the UK political system who's generated some enormous wins, including on Huawei and um, uh, Magnitsky legislation and other things, um, that we, as parliamentarians, we need to make sure we use this time well. Um, I'm very proud of the role I played in stopping the extradition treaty. I suspect no matter what I do after this, that will be one thing that I look back on fondly, that I could only have done as a new, humble, naive backbencher that I wouldn't have had the gumption or the freedom to do later on in life, uh, later on in a parliamentary career, and certainly as a minister would have been confined by cabinet solidarity. Um, so I'm, I'm mindful of using this time as usefully as I can um, you know, with the objectives in mind of leaving Australian democracy more robust, leaving our sovereignty more secure, and making sure our freedoms are preserved. Um, and I'll look back with pride if I've been able to do that in this time, and who knows what comes next, but um, that's what I want to use this time I have for now. Well, thank you, uh, Senator James Patterson, for joining us on the National Security Podcast. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Well, dear listener, that's it for today. But before you go, let us recommend the recent paper from Catherine Manstead, Senior Advisor for Public Policy here at the ANU National Security College. It's titled The Domestic Security Grey Zone, Navigating the Space Between Foreign Influence and Foreign Interference. And it puts forward a range of policy options underpinned by four guiding principles. We've put a link in the show notes. Finally, before we go, if you haven't already, please give us a rating on your podcast platform of choice. It helps us connect our work with new listeners. And of course, if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. The Living Room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.